if you discuss travels between different parts of the world and immigration between different parts of the Americas, it's a good way to have no career as an archaeologist. It's a religious thing, but it's a weird thing. Hello and welcome to the Time Traveler's Suitcase. I'm Pete Ferrand. We're continuing our discussion from our last podcast with Richard Thornton. Richard Thornton is an architect and city planner by profession, a Creek Indian living in North Georgia who's become fascinated by the origins of the various populations who've peopled the Southeast over thousands of years. He's spent years documenting various ancient ruins and artifacts says he has evidence that does not meet with the approval of a lot of the establishment. He's become convinced, for instance, that Mayans had come in significant numbers to Georgia. We'll find out his story in just a moment. DNA Consultants is the sponsor of the Time Traveler's Suitcase, It's a company that has been helping people find their ancestry for more than 15 years. The founder, Donald Yates, has written a number of popular books that have now become audio titles, like Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Proved the Geneticists Wrong. This is the audiobook featured in the first few episodes. His pledge, then and now, was to treat every customer's family history with the same care as his own. That idea was behind the DNA Fingerprint Plus Cherokee Ancestry Test. And now, primeval DNA. Based on the discoveries of Israeli-American geneticist Eran el it is the world's first ancient DNA test series. Could you match both modern-day Israeli Jews and ancient Israelites? It's possible, but it's only possible at DNA Consultants. Visit us online at www.dnaconsultants.com. Check out the latest in DNA research on modern-day populations and ancient peoples like Vikings, early American Indians, Stone Age Europeans, and others. You'll be delighted and amazed. The Mayan civilization went into decline around 900 to 1000 A.D., Our guest on today's program, Richard Thornton, has done some work in Chichen Itza, one of the main Mayan cities located in the Mexican state of Yucatan, and I asked him about it. I was the first recipient of the Barrett Fellowship at Georgia Tech. It's a fellowship given to architecture and planning students. It's been endowed, and as as a bonus deal, it turned out that the uh, the consul in Atlanta from, from Mexico was a graduate in architecture at Georgia Tech. And so he gave me VIP status that I had experiences far beyond what a normal student would ever have. He assigned my fellowship coordinators to the most famous archaeologists in the world, Ignacio Bernal and Ramon Peñachan. Uh, Pena Chan was director of the National Museum in Mexico City. You got me that point. And I had run as a museum while I was there. And I had a photo ID. Basically, it was like I was an employee of the government. And I got to see most of the major sites in all of Mexico, Guatemala, and Belize. 
during that first trip. I've been there several times since then. Um, saw things that I was far too young to appreciate, but at least I kept a daily journal, and I still have it. And then also I was acquired for the fellowship to take at least 2,500 color slides of what I saw, and I still have those slides. So they've suddenly become extremely valuable here in the 21st century, and I see things that I didn't possibly think about when I was there the first time. I was young, you know, very young. And, and you know, and it, it's, it's always good. And that's why I think my professors stressed that I needed to record everything I saw. I think being older and wiser, they knew that there are things when you get older, you need to have those your experiences documented. So when you come to a situation like I have in this stage of my career, I'm doing nothing but essentially anthropology or historical architecture, you have that to refresh your memory. And so I'm seeing much, much more in these records I took so long ago than I possibly could have done when I was younger. Right, because you don't understand the significance of them. No, I didn't understand the significance. I was in love. I met a Mexican senorita in in, in the neighborhood where I lived, Alicia Moreno, very intelligent. She was Sephardic Jewish, by the way. I see. Her family was from... uh, Turkey than France, and I, that's how I know about Sephardic Jews. I was, my first love was Sephardic Jewish, although our family converted to Catholicism to come to Mexico to escape the Nazis. I learned all about their culture, which I would never have known otherwise. Uh, but yeah, I was, you know, young guy in love, uh, always was maneuvering to get the requirements for going on site as a way to making a date with Alicia and things like that. But Again, as long as you write down what you experience and photograph what you experience, then later on you can come back when you're older and wiser and, and make sense of Scientists and engineers have always believed in writing things down. The engineering notebook is legendary, actually. Why not tell us a bit more about Chichen Itza and what you've experienced there? Okay. Chichen Itza is one of the places I went to. I was assigned to go. It is in northern Yucatan Peninsula. It originally was Maya. Uh, it was then occupied by Itza, the same people who came to Georgia. Probably at the, around the time of the collapse of the Maya civilization, there was a huge volcanic eruption in Chiapas, and, which is to the south of there, about 500 miles. And it, they had to evacuate all of the lands, the highlands where the Itza Mayas lived. And some of them ended up in northern Yucatan, where there was no problems from the volcano, and found the city. And then, again, they were conquered around 1000 A.D. by uh, people from central Mexico. And that's the point where we show all over the lower southeast the appearance of, of Maya culture. And, in fact, the radiocarbon date for the Track Rock Gap archaeological site, the oldest one so far, is 1014 A.D., which is 14 years after Chichen Itza was captured by the Central Mexicans and the Itza peoples were expelled. So, in the suburbs of Chichen Itza, you will find houses identical to the Creek houses in Georgia. They're identical. There's no difference. In fact, the same word. They call it a cheeky, and we call it a cheeky. And then, so, you go to say Etowah Mounds, northwest of Atlanta, and you'll see that the same houses that were in in the suburbs of Chichen Itza at the same time. So, can you help us with the overall significance of this sort of thing? The best I can determine, we also learned that there was a major Peruvian migration around 100 A.D. to right in the 100, 200 A.D. that 
became the basis of the Creek Indians. So originally they were Peruvian Indians. And in fact, the elite always were Peruvian in their culture, and they lived in separate villages. Wow. The word Apalachee is the anglicization of Aparashi, which is the name of the elite of the Creeks. And so they were, on maps you call them Apalachee, but they were, that's the source of the name of the Appalachian Mountains. So we have core words in the Creek language that are known from Peru. And then you had large numbers of it's a commoners, not the elite, but just regular folks and escaped slaves, whatever came here. And so you have a, Several types of classifications of words in our language are pure as Maya, as are many of our river names, like the Chattahoochee is a, is a Maya word, or it's a Maya word. And um, so you had a pretty much the same process that created English. And that's what I try to explain to people. You know, the, the people who lived in Great Britain 2,000 years ago hardly recognizable modern English. You can't right. even, couldn't even begin to understand the language. Well, the same thing happened here. You had multiple immigrations that made a hybrid people just like the English and you have a hybrid language and a hybrid culture that reflects input from many parts of the world. Give us a sense then of what you've found as evidence for other populations arriving in the area. At least here all of the evidence is 100% Ireland and southern Scandinavia Okay, as far as coming here. Uh, farther south, say in the Columbus, Georgia area, in the Chattahoochee, they have found evidence of Minoans. And there's another mystery because the Minoans come from Crete and that area more than 1,000 B.C. That's into the Bronze Age. And we also have a triangular temple built out of quarried stone at a mud volcano in northeast metro Atlanta, which is identical to temples built on Cyprus and Sardinia in the Mediterranean during the Bronze Age. Um, I, I've, I've not seen anything related to the Slavs being here, but who knows? The evidence is primarily, though, that the the, the, the numbers suggest in the, in the art that it's mainly the many migrations that occurred here came from Ireland, Scotland, and southern Scandinavia in the Bronze Age. Yeah. We did have Jewish miners here in the 1600s, though. And in fact, in the valley where I live, there's eyewitness accounts of the uh, were Sephardic Jews who escaped the Inquisition and then came to this area to, to live in what they call New Jerusalem and mine the gold. Okay, so they came from Spain. I, yeah, I think they, probably the route they took, many of them, was to go from Spain to France to the Netherlands and then take Dutch ships back to the South Atlantic coast. What and for whom were they mining? Gold here. Yeah. Uh, we have some eyewitness accounts from 1653, Richard Brickstock, who came up here from Barbados. He also visited gem miners uh, living in several valleys in western North Carolina, where there were a lot of gemstones. Oh, okay. But they were also Sephardic Jewish, Spanish-speaking Jews. Uh, April of 2010, I found a inscription at about 5,400 feet elevation in the Smoky Mountains, that it was in Ladino Spanish, which is a language spoken by the Sephardic Jews, and it commemorated a wedding on September 15, 1615, and the stone was carved at the top of a gap between North Carolina and Tennessee. Just some sort of a commemorative stone? Yes, and I talked to some Jewish friends, and they said there was, particularly among the Sephardic Jews, a tradition that if a couple wanted to get married, they couldn't find a rabbi, 
they could, there was a ceremony where they would stand before each other in front of witnesses and declare themselves married, and then they would record the marriage and the date on a, on a stone. And that's, so that's very much within their tradition of making a marriage legal. Yeah, that's very interesting. I did not, I did not know that. You want to hear something funny, though? Oh, of course. I'm sure the, the listeners want to hear something funny. Other people aware of this inscription, and they at Hooper's on Hooper's Ball before me, and they took it to the Department of Anthropology at the University of Tennessee, who said the, the words were Latin, and it said we control this land. Well, it's not Latin at all. It's Spanish. Ooh. I mean, <laughs> it's not like. Spanish is an unknown language, and, and and what it says in Spanish that their prayers we will give, married September fifteenth, sixteen fifteen. That that's the key thing that my Jewish friends told me that the prayers we will give, they they say prayers together as husband and wife, and they give the date of the thing. So that that's why we knew they had casada, which is the word for married in Spanish too. But how someone with a Ph.D. in anthropology would mistake Latin for Spanish, I have no clue. And the guy was director of their department. <laughs> of course, Spanish Spanish is a Latin language, but uh, well, yeah, pretty, but I, I mean, different. I, I I mean, I instantly saw it. I could read it. I know Spanish. And I know Latin, and it was you know, it's instantly read it as Spanish. I, I, there are some subtle differences that they say is Ladino Spanish. For example, the. Um, Spanish speakers, Catholics, we use the word supplication for prayer, and this had used the word pre. That kind of threw me off and then found that pre was the Jewish word for prayer in Spain. That's why, how we knew who had done it. And then things like that is the approach we take with many of our research. We look for little details and interpolate them, and then we come up with an answer to, to the mystery. Yeah, and you imagine that the people who were getting married were part of this mining community. Somebody. Yes, and there was, you know, there was mining. There's, there was stuff down there. They're part of the Smokies. And someone is suggesting this is possible. There was a uh, Jewish man marrying an Indian woman. Could be. I don't know. Right. Or even possibly the reverse, but that's a little harder to believe. Yeah. I'm thinking here we should mention that you have a website called peopleofonefire.com. Um, yes, and I have a new website that's purely professional with no advertising. I, I don't own that other website, this, so we, we do use it, but it's called the America's Revealed, and it's laid out like an architect's report, uh, much more straightforward and no advertising, which I go, each time we analyze an archaeological site, I'm writing a report with photographs and drawings and on this stuff called the Appalachiaresearch.com uh, Appalachia is the web address, Appalachia Research, with one E at the end for Appalachia and one P in the beginning. And then the name of the site is the Americas Revealed, where we were, we're posting all of our research reports. If we discover a new city or a new tomb or a new pyramid or whatever, I'm writing an article on it and posting it to the Americas Revealed. Is this... How shall I say this? Because I don't want to get into too much of your personal background. But is this a, a business for you, or is somebody uh, a foundation supporting you, or how how does how does that work? Or are you doing this o only your own uh, resources? Primarily, I uh, I have a very modest lifestyle. I and but I primarily I get no direct remuneration for this research. Okay. Okay. Uh, but 
creates opportunities for me professionally otherwise. And also, I've written several books. You know, in the publicize the books, I get regular donations from people. Oh, okay. Uh, but I, I have a modest lifestyle. I was able to buy a fixer-upper house in a very nice neighborhood on top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. And so you'd never know it, but I, you know, I can't hop in the in the jet and fly to Paris for the weekend. <laughs> and I have a have have an old car being rebuilt, but it's okay. It's fine. I, I like this really much better than when I was in conventional architecture practice, which got to be a real pain. The construction industry got very corrupt down here, and it just, you got tired of dealing with it. Yeah, I have a friend of mine who started out as a civil engineer and gave it up very quickly because of the corruption involved. And, and actually, my, my career evolved towards this. I was had experience. You know, I was working in Sweden. I was working on a site next to a, a medieval farm, Gamlagard. And so I, from the very beginning, I had exposure to very, very old buildings and sites. And so by the time I was reaching the peak of my career uh, in the 1990s, I was being called in to work on very old houses. Both when I was living in Virginia, I went back, you know, to the late 1600s. And then the next step was when I was brought in by the the National Museum of, of Natural History to do the architectural drawings for a Spanish colonial mission on the coast of Georgia, which dated from around 1585, 1600 A.D. So I kept on getting older and older at sites. And then the next step is a county heard that I'd done the mission and asked me to do drawings for an Indian mound. Okay. And then, and then for five years, I was a consultant to the Skokie Creek Nation. And that's where I developed a real body of knowledge and, and drawing ability, how to draw these towns and what the details should be. As a consultant, where I was being paid very generously by the Creek Nation to research your past. Does that answer your question? Yes, so it I, does. I, I, I don't live lavish. No, I, I have nothing to hide. I mean, I just, I yeah. think, like, so how do you have time to this? Well, I live modestly and I have some yeah. some regular income coming in okay. now that I didn't have that, that uh, enables me to by living modestly to devote myself 100% to anthropology and architectural history. Right, and that's basically why I was curious, because what you're doing doesn't doesn't sound like it produces the income that a working architect would normally get. Yeah, but I mean, you get um, the thing I did for PBS, the, you know, a guy was well compensated for much more than I would have been as an architect. Oh, so, really? Okay. I mean, you know, when you get on TV programs and things like that, you'll be compensated. Uh, a lot of people would be shocked how little I live on, but on the other hand, I'm not in deep poverty, and I'd rather be doing what I'm doing now and be happy and healthy than get back to struggling to make more money as an architect. On the Time Traveler's suitcase today, we are speaking with Richard Thornton. He's an architect, city planner, museum exhibit builder with an interest in anthropology, More specifically, the migration of various peoples who lived in the southeastern United States. Much of this history he's documented is not the same as the history we've all read about for many years. So the question is, why has most of this history been ignored by the general public and the standard history references? That is a good question. Um, for example, I, I, I have to use a parable on this. Uh, if you recall the controversy in 2012, where the archaeologists in Georgia and the Cherokee Indians in North Carolina and the neo Nazis here in Georgia all ganged up to call something called Maya Mist Busting in Mountains. 
they had control of the media, and they just said a lot of false statements, politicized it. And for example, the Creeks have always said we're from Mexico, always, the last 300 years, and their language, and their, you know, we, we sent off our, our DNA sample, comes back Mesoamerican. I mean, that is not a theory. When they say the Maya thing, no, it's not a theory, it's a fact. We just didn't know where and how they came. Um, for some reason, in American academia, particularly, it's probably worse than the Southeast, but I can't say that for a fact. There's an extreme degree of conservatism in which somewhere in the past, some authority figure in academia produced a speculation and declared it to be a fact. And the way that they teach people anthropology and history in the United States tends to make it into a religion in which you're just force-fed what the facts are, and anything other than the facts is considered to be heretical. And that is not the case for anthropology in Mexico and Latin America or in Europe. As a result, we have a, a fossilized body of knowledge amongst the white academicians that they don't want to change it. It's like a religion to them. I am and imagining this, that in the early days of this country with the German and uh, mostly British uh, settlers, they did regard the Indians as savages. And that mentality probably propagated for many, many years that the Indians had these uh, cute rituals. And beyond that, there really wasn't much worth studying. Is that a possibility? No, it's worse. It's weirder than that, in fact. Really, it's really, really weird. I mean, they, uh, like I had my first mentor was Dr. Arthur Kelly, a very famous archaeologist in the southeast from the late 20th century, probably one of the best known of, the, of that era. And he was crucified for going public and said that he found my or Miss American artifacts on the Chattahoochee River. I mean, he was literally non-person. He lost his position as director of the Department of Anthropology, University of Georgia, and he became a, um, uh, you know, like a non-person in his profession overnight. And he just stated the fact he found Miss American artifacts. So they are obsessed with trying to block any connection between Mexico and here, and we do not understand it. Yeah, now, it, these archaeologists have probably never been in the same room with a real Native American. I mean, they certainly never kissed a Native American or <laughs> had one as a lover. I mean, they, they have no clue who anything about our culture. Even the ones that call themselves experts on the creeks, they've never been in contact with us. They, they have no idea of the culture, the values, you know, nothing. Well, they just... Um, but it's really weird, and you can, I understand the same thing in, in the Midwest also, with those anthropology schools. If you discuss travels between different parts of the world and immigration between different parts of the Americas, it's a good way to have no career as an archaeologist. Wow. It's a religious thing, but it's a weird religion. That is why we set up our own organization and didn't try to seek approval from the Georgia archaeologists. Henceforth, we just did our own thing. And when I have money, I'll hire archaeologists. If it has to be, you have to hire from Mexico or, or Puerto Rico. We'll get archaeologists who have an open mind and to work with us on these sites. And the lost colony of Roanoke wasn't really lost? It's sort of lost, but it just some of the people survived and came here. You know that story, too, huh? Yeah. That's another, that's another one of those religious anthropology religion stories uh robert Walship 
identified 28 tablets written as Elizabethan. He found some of them himself that, that marked where the last survivors of the Roanoke colony settled here. And then the obvious reason was this was a this capital of advanced civilization. And that by that time, the high king of Appalachia had converted to Protestant Christianity. He had taken in the survivors of Fort Carolyn, and they had converted into Christianity. And so the reason the Roanoke people came here is they're going to a place where there was a Christian king and who already had uh, French Protestants living here. And, and something so that oh, makes perfect sense. They, this is when England was at war with Spain, if the people could have been burned at the stake if they were captured by the Spanish. Although and, something went wrong at Roanoke, clearly, to uh, force them to leave or to ins- give them an yeah, incentive to leave. Yeah, and then most leave. of the people died, yeah. even according to the tablets. But they, uh, Robert Washam actually found the burial tomb of Ellen Adair. He also found where she lived. And when he started to go public on it, he was quickly hired by the state of North Carolina away from the University of Georgia with a condition he immediately quit University of Georgia mid-semester and not go back to Georgia and not discuss what he found here because North Carolina did not want the public to know that some of the survivors had come down here because they'd mess up their play about the lost colony. Wow. That's And I have a feeling... This is not the first time that's happened. I have a feeling that if you really go into American history, you'll find lots of cases where it's really stupid people doing stupid things, trying to manipulate or, or change history for reasons that just seem don't make any sense at all. And that's certainly the case here. But that's why you don't know about what Robert Washington discovered here in 1939. Yeah. Or they but may it's, have... it's in his book. He published it in 1966. I mean, that's where I'm getting the information. I mean, it became public knowledge 20 years, 25 years later. Hmm. But no one read his book except archaeologists. <laughs> or these things may have made sense to people then for their own personal reasons, or own personal aggrandizement or whatever. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's just weirdness. When you get into controlling history, you just find weird stories like that. And I'm certainly not the lone manger. My experience is I hear stories from other parts of the United States of different bits of history, but the same thing going on where particularly influential government agencies, whatever, will will want to conceal what the truth was, what actually happened. All right, Richard Thornton, thank you very much. For your time today, I think we've covered the area of your investigations reasonably thoroughly. Just remember, what I'm saying today might change tomorrow. <laughs> well, that's the mark of a, of a scientist. I mean, you're, you're you're looking at evidence. If you find evidence to the contrary, to rambling, yes, I do confess to being a rambling wreck at Georgia Tech, <laughs> and I think like one, not not like a, uh, a someone promoting a particular religion. Right. Really, scientists have to be, and this is something that. I've noticed with scientists and with doctors and all kinds of other people that they have their mental straitjackets and that they want to keep everything the way it always was or the way when when they were in school, that's the way it was, and we Absolutely. don't want things to change. It has been a pleasure talking with you, though. It has so. also. Let's mention your website. Uh, your main website is peopleofonefire.com. Well, my main one's now the America's Revealed. That's my own website. Oh, okay. Okay, although there is... We're, a... we're publishing all of our research projects on, on the America's Revealed from now on. Okay, although there is a link to that from the one yes. I just mentioned. 
Um, it's a non-commercial site. It looks like an architect did it. You know, it, it, it's the same format as when I, for a private client, that I produce reports. So they'll they'll feel more. It's very straightforward type of site. A lot of pictures of rocks. Mm, yeah, pretty naked <laughs> pictures. <laughs> I see that. I see a lot of pictures of rocks. And again, that's how do you pronounce oh, okay. it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I told you the architecture appears rock. Didn't I tell you that? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's not what you, it's not teepees. It's rock structures. I mean, so yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, there were, there were the, the rocks and the stones are what's preserved, and it's up Appalachian Research. Is that the pronunciation that you want? Yes, uh-huh. Appalachian means uh, Aparashi means uh, sins of people from the city. Okay, so it's A-P-A-L-A-C-H-E-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. Okay, yeah. because I just wanted to spell that out because it is a little unusual. And you are building building this site from what you are currently working on. All right. You, you, people will be able to keep track of our discoveries, and we're making major discoveries of, of national significance right now. So they'll be able to follow what we're doing. Super. Richard Thornton, again, thank you very much, and you have a good afternoon. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. We've been listening to Richard Thornton talk about his work documenting and trying to understand some of the ancient peoples who traveled way more than most people are aware of or has been written up in most popular histories. Again, if you're interested in checking out what Richard Thornton is doing with his research, he would like you to check out his webpage at AppalachiResearch.com. That's A-P-A-L-A-C-H-E, and then Research.com. It's all one word. You can find all of Donald Yates's and DNA Consultants' books on Amazon.com as well as Audible.com, from Ancestors and Enemies to Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Prove the Geneticists Wrong. Here are some of the voices from those audiobooks. Nearly 2,000 years ago, 200 BCE, great revolutions happened in the north of Asia. The Oguzian Empire was severed and a swarm of barbarous nations emigrating from Tatari, Mongolia, and Siberia spread desolation from Europe to America. In Europe, they nearly destroyed the powerful Roman Empire, and in North America, they subverted many civilized states. When we lived beyond the Great Waters, there were twelve clans belonging to the Cherokee tribe. And back in the old country in which we lived, the country was subject to great floods. So in the course of time, we held a council and decided to build a storehouse reaching to heaven. The Cherokees said that when the house was built and the floods came, the tribe would just leave the earth and go to heaven. You will never find out the truth about my mother's people, sneered Elzina when we met with her in her Victorian cottage in Huntsville. Elzina was Teresa's aunt, my father-in-law's older sister. Teresa and I had both recently discovered we were Melungeon, or at least of Melungeon descent. As an American Indian recently relocated to Santa Fe, I regarded an outing to Chaco Canyon as a pilgrimage of obligation. So on a bright, sunny Saturday morning in October, 
three of us set forth after mistakenly selecting the shortest route on the map. The Decalogue Stone outside Los Lunas, New Mexico, is a site seen by few people. Its very location is something of a state secret. You need a $25 access permit from the public land office to go to it. Only officials are very clear. They cannot and will not give you directions. I hope you'll join us for the next Time Traveler Suitcase, as there's lots more to explore in the world of DNA. Listen to us on iTunes and from the link at dnaconsultants.com. We'd like to hear your comments. Please direct them to the webpage. The Time Traveler Suitcase is brought to you by DNA Consultants. Check out the webpage at dnaconsultants.com. The program is created by Donald Yates and Pete Ferrand, and I'm host and producer Pete Ferrand. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.